Okay, new podcast. We still don't have uh, intro, so I will be singing a second. Be prepared. I think it's from Handel. I always remember listening to that one uh, as an intro for uh, going to opera or something like that. I'm not sure right now. Um, okay, so new podcast. Second one for uh, Codurance. We still don't have a name for the podcast. Hopefully, if I, by the third one, we do. We'll come up with a name. <laughs> um, so, I am back, Jorge. Uh, I'm going to call it from now onwards Mumbles, because, goddammit, I am difficult to listen to. <laughs> uh, with me, I have... Uh, oh, right, uh, Chris Bimson. I'm a software craftsman here at uh, Codurance. Um, I've been in this, uh, doing software development for probably about 16 years now. <clears throat> uh, I mostly work in .NET, in Visual Studio, and uh, Visual Studio Code a lot recently, since I sort of shifted a lot of my personal computing onto Linux. So, yeah, okay, yeah. yes. Um, partly as an experiment to see if I could do it. Okay, uh, actually, uh, before we go with the theme, now that you have talked about it, <laughs> how are you finding Linux? Um, fine, I've, I've been using it on and off over the years anyway, so what I did as a little experiment was I bought um, a second-hand Chromebook for hardly any money, okay. uh, and uh, tried to get um, uh, Linux installed on it with Crouton, uh, and then I just wanted to see how practical that would be for you know just doing um, personal development projects just on the go where I didn't have to take like a heavy or expensive machine around with me. And yeah, it actually works okay. It runs IntelliJ quite well. It runs Visual Studio quite well. Uh, Visual Studio Code quite well, I should say. Um, um, it was uh, like £200 well spent. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, so th th this is because uh, on our Slack channel we have been talking about uh, uh, Linux and whatnot. My machine, the one that I use at work at the moment, is a Dell laptop with a Linux installer. That's what I've been using for the past year and nearly half. Um, my screen is high DPI. Oh, yeah. And that's, right now, that's a massive issue with uh, with Linux. And because every monitor, the secondary monitor that I'm going to use is not high DPI at the moment, it is causing me headaches. Yeah, fortunately, that's not a problem I have with the Chromebook because they're the best they do is full HD so yeah. and I don't frequently plug it into monitor or anything it's generally for just doing small things on the train or that kind of stuff when I'm travelling about um, I use the MacBook if I'm actually going to be at any particular location for a period of time but no I mean uh, it was a, just an experiment I did um, you know just to see if I could do it and it, it's worked out quite well actually I've, mm. a lot of the um, stuff I put on my GitHub has actually been written on that little machine so yeah it's um If you're looking to, like, for example, get into coding or something for kids or something, it's a small outlay and it's actually yeah. fairly easy to set up. Um, uh, I can't remember if I published instructions on how to do it on my blog, but if not, you can Google it. It's loads of people tell you how to use Crouton. And, um, okay. Uh, yeah, the, it's um, it works really well. Um, like I said, I don't know much more I can say about it. I mean, it, mm. it's a, they're, they're not super powerful machines. You know, you're not going to be doing, yeah. you know, massive. 500,000 lines of code builds on them and, <laughs> but you know for for catters small exercise personal projects yeah. it's fine okay okay that's that's really quite interesting because I do tend to go, always go over, oh I'm gonna buy something for, to try uh, let's gonna spend the money for it 
And sometimes after I have done it, it's, uh, maybe it wasn't that, uh, that much of a great idea to put so much money ahead of time. Well, I mean, it, it was a deliberate choice to go really cheap, just in case it turned out to be a terrible <laughs> idea. I, I was 50 50 was going to work, but even there, you can, it even runs IntelliJ, you know, fairly yeah, well. Okay. It's not, um, I'd say it's not great. I wouldn't want it to be my day in, day out, eight hours a day programming machine. But for a couple of hours here and there on personal projects on the plane or on the, on the you know on the train, it's great. Nice, very nice. Okay, so the theme that we wanted to talk uh, today about is professionalism, and it, we were looking for thinking about what we could talk about, and then came the the Linux mail, yes. uh, <laughs> which it, it had been quite famous in the industry because of his. Uh, Uh, How do we phrase it delicately? Um, what's the opposite of conflict averse? Conflict enthusiastic <laughs> way of, of of dealing with people, I guess. Yeah, um, and one of the things that I have seen before talk a lot about that it was that lots of companies will not allow that kind of uh, of. Uh, Of a way of dealing with people, at least in the ones that I have worked with. Uh, everywhere for, I've worked, if I talk to people like that, I'd be, I'd be fired. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and sometimes it is, they will allow, especially someone very important for the company, but there is a certain limit, and you can reach that limit quite quickly if there are too many people complaining and things like that. Yeah, I've worked with people who do, who behave in a similar way, but it's infrequently. And they're generally smart enough to do it in private, <laughs> uh, which is um, I'm not endorsing it because I actually I think this this is kind of long overdue. I, I don't think I don't think you should talk to people like that, and you know I don't think it's productive. It doesn't help any anything. Um, and the other thing I don't like about it is the way I don't want to make it too personal, but the way uh, Linus has behaved in the past, the way he flames people over email, is held up as some sort of standard to aspire yes. to as the way people should behave I think that's probably the worst part of it um, because it really isn't oh, I don't know much more you can say about it <laughs> I don't know it, it is inter interesting from the point of view of how uh, people interact that I have I have found that uh, or there, there are studies in which that shows that you don't need To be a, a to have so much conflict or be abrasive or a, anything like big contentious with other people, just to move the thing forward, you can do it. There are other ways of doing it that are yeah, more useful and than that that way of uh, of uh, communicating actually burns people down. Yeah, I don't think it necessarily does even even move things forward. I think if you communicate like that, even if you're right, all it does is get people's backs up and makes them in some ways more, in, you know, um, reject what you're saying even more, whether you're right or wrong. So even if you're right, talking people like that isn't the better. You're, you're you're trying to get people to behave in a certain way or do a certain thing. You don't that berating them and being rude to them is not a good strategy for getting what you want. <laughs> I know. I, I people are just agree. naturally sort of combative. Oh, well, hmm. some people will clam up, some and some people will just be like, "Well, you know, to hell with you! I'll, I'll go do what I was doing anyway." <laughs> Which 
which it is for us, for uh, which we are a consultancy. That's quite important because it, we we deal with external companies. We work for external companies. We have to deal with them, and it will just not fly. No, I mean, no. I mean, even more so in, in our line of work. There's one thing to behaving like that. I mean, it's still wrong if you do it mm. internally with internal people and, and that kind of thing. But as an external supplier and as a consultant, it would be even even more counterproductive. Yeah, well, we we'll lose uh, yeah, I mean, contracts. You do exactly, <laughs> and that's not that's not good for the company. Uh, and it's important as well uh, in terms of how you communicate because you need to when you are dealing with a client. You need to, uh, the client uh, he has his own goals about how to, uh, what they want to achieve, okay? Uh, sometimes they have, uh, they have, uh, they know how they want to achieve it. Well, no. They think they, they know. They think they know, exactly. And being, and I, it's something that have been in the past, uh, I'm, I mean, uh, guilty of. Uh, being a, a bit di- direct on we shouldn't be doing this we should be doing that because sometimes I forget the because and it be- <laughs> it, it brings I had it on my I had it on my mind that there is a reason why I want to do things one way or, or another one but if I cannot express myself if I cannot uh, convince the people in front of me the client then it doesn't matter if my idea, my idea is good or not. No, exactly. I mean, I think we've all been in situations where you just have a reflex sort of response, something like, oh, that's a terrible idea. But unless you're prepared to demonstrate, well, you've got to be able to demonstrate why it's a bad idea and what, the, mm. and what a better alternative is to get what they want. Otherwise, um, you know, you're not helping. Do you have uh, any, any example in mind? Oh, oh, put me on the spot. Um, yeah, I did. No. <laughs> um, not really. Um, nothing so um, so um, sort of dramatic as that as doing consultancy. I think um, I think a few of us were having a, uh, a conversation here about something, rather, I can't remember what it was, and somebody mentioned the idea of marker interfaces in .NET, you know, just an interface with a name that has nothing. And I sort of like, that's stupid. And like, you know... Um, that 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 um, led to a more interesting conversation. It's one of those reflex moments where I was just like, "That's hmm. a really bad idea," but I didn't necessarily follow it up straight away and explain why. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's that's quite a trivial example. Um, no, I'll, put me on the spot. I can't really think of anything like that. Apart from oh, that, that one conversation we were having the other day. <laughs> well, actually, let me mark that one for later on because actually, it has been some conversation that I had today as well. Uh, oh, am I going to have to explain why I think they're bad? <laughs> yes. Uh, because on the past I have, I have told myself that they are bad, but there are. then I found some cases, and we'll talk well, about that. And that is actually the problem why I said I just said they were bad without qualification. A few things are 100% bad 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, that's uh, quite true. Uh, we'll talk later, maybe a bit later about uh, techniques and whatnot. We did mention on the previous podcast that uh, most of the time we went to the TV because we have seen that it's useful. But 
that it doesn't work on 100% of the cases. That there will be cases in which it's just not possible because of the domain, because of the architecture in which you are uh, yeah. set up, because of the legacy code that you have. Yeah, in lots of legacy code situations, it's difficult to go in and start doing TDD without also doing a lot of major surgery to get the code in a position where that's possible. The other thing to think about with TDD is you've got to think about skill levels because not everybody knows how to do it and there is a ramp-up period mm. as to how you learn. So it's not something you can necessarily jump straight into. That said, though, that's one of those techniques I think that is applicable. You know, it's a good idea most of the time. But I struggle to think of any situations where it's, it's not a good idea. Even in, when we were talking about that legacy code situation, it's a good idea to do it. The issue is the cost of getting you to a point where you can do it, uh, in my opinion. Okay. Um, actually, I, I need to put you on the spot, and then I try that I don't have <laughs> top of my mind any. I mean, I, I know I have done things uh, in the past, um, uh, discussing about um, things. How what, I want to do this, and and on, on at the at, at the moment, I don't tend to swear. I don't tend to call people stupid. I don't. I don't think I have ever called anyone stupid directly to the face in a professional environment. Um, no, I mean I've been involved in sort of heated discussions yeah. throughout my career, but I don't think so. I mean, anybody who knows me is feel free to correct me if <laughs> this is wrong. But I don't think it's ever got to the point where it's become personal like that. Yeah, and. It, if it ever has, then A, I apologise, and B, I hope I calmed down and went back and apologised straight away. Because I appreciate, you know, in, in certain situations where people are passionate about stuff, they will lose their temper, and hmm. that happens to everybody. And But the thing, if that does happen, you've got to... Yeah, yeah. you're going to continue working together. Exactly. And there, there is no point on having a bad blood between each other because some disagreement that, at the end of the day, most of them are... Okay, maybe they make the, the system more difficult uh, uh, or easier, but it is still, you're, you're still going to get there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and maybe you are you are so correct on the long run, maybe you are so wrong on, on the long run, but, but being able to continue with those people and work as a team, uh, a small or big thing, whatever it's it is. More, yeah, yeah, big picture, it's more important. A lot of these kind of things that we have these kind of discussions is that these kind of contentious issues tend to, in my experience, tend to happen around things that aren't actually that important. Hmm. People tend to agree on the stuff that really matters and then yeah. they argue about things around the, the periphery. And um, something someone taught me once, I can't remember who it was, but one of the a good way to diffuse those kind of things is, is like, well, okay, so if, suppose there are two alternatives that we could do hmm. and we pick the wrong one. Yeah. What's the cost of just changing it when we find out it's wrong? And that's another way you can sometimes move on from those kind of discussions because hmm. frequently it is that actually it wouldn't be that difficult to change if we pick yeah. the wrong option. Um, yeah. There is... Uh, it, it comes to mind because I was talking about it the other day and, uh, and uh, that's as well sometimes you don't get the decisions uh, right at the point that you are taking them even if you all your experience says let's gonna go this way uh, you're gonna find that maybe the, the exact context in which you are working now 
it doesn't completely apply to your previous experience. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and it is just, it takes you a while to, to find that, okay, on the all previous contests, my decision was correct at this point in time is actually knowing a bit more that I, that I know about the specific contest, the domain of the of the client or how is a, uh, how the rest of the architecture around my system works. And my my original idea wasn't that, that great. And maybe I have to maybe you have had a bubble with other people before, it's so difficult as well to backtrack. On what you say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've got to, I mean, you can't forestall making decisions. Decisions mm. have got to be made, but you've always got to be prepared to go back and revisit them and not be so personally bound to them being correct that you follow them mm. irrespective of the change in context. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. <laughs> uh, you're talking about... Uh, this idea, that, I mean, there, there are several layers over here in, in terms of what we do. Uh, when we go with the client, we, we, we deal with the, um, uh, with the architecture of what they do. We, de we deal with the... Uh, the domain experts, the business people. Yeah. Um, we, we deal as well with uh, the way that things are going to be evolving once we join them. Uh, and I, I think there is there, there is uh, how's it called part of the work that that we do is to find those solutions that are good for the client. As you say, even if they think they know what they want, sometimes you have to look a bit deeper and yes. then say. Mm, this decision could be right and but maybe this other one is slightly better and you have to do that leaving apart what you like as a as an individual person yeah we've all got our personal preferences for how things should be done what technology we should use what language we should use what operating systems all those mm. kind of things and it's e it can be easy to let your own personal preference interfere with what's best for the client. Hmm. Because just because you like it and it's good for you doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for them. Yeah. Uh, that is uh, one specific word that uh, had been used in one of my previous companies uh, in which uh, it, it was called... How uh, was called? Uh, CV, uh, CV driven architecture, <laughs> which I, I, has have, I have seen it a lot of times in which someone wants to deal with one new technology and puts it and kind of forces into the... It, it, it's something of a dirty little secret in our industry, but because I think I was discussing this with someone else the other day, is um, a lot of what we do, <laughs> if, you, if you, our job to a certain extent overlaps quite a lot with what is in fact a hobby. Yeah. And sometimes what people are interested in and what they're keen to try out gets pushed into um, projects or systems where it's not appropriate or not the right choice. Um, I think I think actually we're talking about this in the context of over-engineering that after a while people spend a lot of time learning the stuff, they're, you know, they're proud of what they do 
and they have a tendency to sometimes over engineer things not even consciously yeah but because they they know all this stuff and then they want a challenge so whether consciously or subconsciously they turn it into a challenge whether it is or not <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean I think all um, vulnerable to that kind of thinking to a certain extent uh, it, it is indeed the, the case and a few times in the past I have to stop myself and think about I am recommending this why I actually why I am actually recommending it it is because I am 100% sure it is the right solution I am it is because it's something that I like to try or or what now I like for example I, I'm the idea of microservices or rather well microservices is an implementation tail software oriented architecture uh, service oriented architecture uh, I, I like the, the idea quite a lot I like the, the idea of using web APIs uh, REST to be able to handle all those services but after my first try with it I realized that I, I haven't, since the first time that I did it I have never recommend anyone to go directly into service oriented architecture. It has been always okay. You have your uh, monolith. Let's gonna try to fix get uh, some clear definitions, and then we move to the one. I know I want to go there because it's what I like personally, but I found it so difficult if you don't fix the actual issues inside the company that led to a. The spaghetti monolith, monolith, uh, this this tangle that they usually have. Yeah, I mean these. I mean, nobody starts off trying to write a great big tangled monolith. It's something that happens over time, step by step. I mean, mm. I tend to think the things that I don't think there's anything unique about monoliths that makes them, um, or a monolithic architecture, sorry, that makes them more likely to go bad. I think no. it's. Um, and that's one of the things I think you see microservices being sort of pushed as a panacea. If you've got a monolith, you should break it up into microservices and you'll live in a land of milk and honey and everything will be great. Yeah. But if the same pressures that caused, you know, your microservice to, to degrade and rot internally and become a great big mess, they're not going to go away when you move stuff no. to microservices. Admittedly, the fact that you've got like physical service separation means that leaking things across the boundary yeah. might be a little bit harder. <laughs> but, you know, the kind of things that, the kind of situations that lead to those sort of, um, those um, um, monolithic, monolithic architectures becoming a great big ball of mud yeah. is things like time pressure and things that people, um, people whose um, skill level isn't possibly where it needs to be to do the kind of work they're doing. That's going to happen irrespective of what architecture you pick, yeah. or potentially unless you unless you recognise that it's a problem and look to look to fix it. Uh, that, that is, of, of course, I, I, on this regard, I do agree with you. It, it is what you need to fix first is how the team deal with each other inside the team, how they communicate with other people on the company, how the architecture is being. Uh, Sorry, no, the architecture, the, 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 the domains, how they are being uh, divided between the, all the different teams and all those communication channels that you have. To, that's what you have to fix. And once you start fixing that, everything else will, go, will, start, will take time, but will fall into place. And there are good reasons to use microservices. There are certain... Uh, um, uh, how's it called? Uh, uh, certain um, 
characteristics of microservices that made them useful, but it's mm, unless you are really, really big. Yeah, I mean, they have lots of... Uh, there are lots of things about them that made them attractive. Um, but one of the things I think people underestimate when, you know, trying to turn their monolith into, you know, a suite of microservices is now you have all the same problems you had before with your business logic and everything. But now you've got all the additional problems of building a distributed system and making all that work. But that's also pretty difficult. <laughs> um, so you, you've got to be prepared for that. They're not... Um, at the moment, they seem to be sort of presented as kind of a, a silver bullet, which is, you know, as we all know, there isn't such a thing. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm not down on microservices. I, I think, by and large, it's a good pattern and it, it's, yeah. it's applicable in lots of cases. But you, like everything, it's it's not a, a you know a magic spanner you can use to fix all your problems. No, it's not a hammer. <laughs> yeah, magic hammer. Uh, we. We are talking about this idea of, uh, so, the long term, maybe there are things that need to be fixed in architecture, but uh, I, but there are other things, which, uh, things that, for example, we uh, value a lot in uh, uh, at Codurance. Uh, all these coding techniques that you have to use. Uh, or that we think because that's what one experience shows us that we have to use to improve in general the coding improve the 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 efficacy uh, efficiency rather efficiency of the of the developers and it is sometimes it is difficult to to go to a client and tell them yeah you should be using TD when most of the people over there don't want to do it. Yeah, exactly. You've got to be able to... Whatever you do, you've got to be able to sell it to the people who are working there. And I think the other thing, perhaps we didn't spend, haven't spent enough time on, is that, like I say, the client has certain goals. And in a lot of big organizations especially, mm-hmm. there are many things you could be fixing. Yeah. But if you're not looking um, if you're not working on something that's directly contributing to their actual stated goal you're not really helping you might improve something mm. it might end up being better but if it doesn't get them closer to to where they want to be you've not really helped in the grand scheme of things yeah uh, we've helped a little bit but it's not <laughs> you know what I mean uh, they didn't hire you to just make random improvements scattered yeah. throughout the, you know they've got the place they want to be and all the things you're doing should be pushing them towards yeah. that place it's not the case that sometimes you need to do those small improvements. Again, it's, we are talking about the long run of the company, of the client. Maybe they are not focusing on that at the moment, but we know that is, or we think, we think always, <laughs> that in however long it takes to get there, they are gonna. They will have big benefits. Um, we, are, we were talking there before. Uh, sometimes it is difficult to start in TDE because of the legacy code of the application. Uh, sometimes people do not understand why a golden master it is useful. Uh, and to be honest, until I saw it the first time working, uh, one of my previous companies. Uh, we have this massive system, uh, 
C Sharp application system that it was basically a library or framework for the people to code against. Yeah. And it will create a positive files. Yeah. And we, the, the, the whole system was pretty, really entangled. I mean, I tried once as a, as a exercise to extract only one part of the, uh, of the code, see if I could actually make it independent. And then I was, as I was pulling things up, I thought, I realized that I had to pull every, every single thing around it. I was just kind of replicating the whole yeah. code in, in, in a different library. And one of the things that a couple of, our, uh, of my colleagues did was create a, a test that will run all the, I think Rust does, Rust does something similar at the moment. They will fetch some of the, of the applications run against our framework, we run them before and after doing changes, right. and we compare the actual output, post-script output, the, the, the files that you send to the printers to... Uh, to That's a good idea. And, of course, it, it, is, it, takes, it will take hours, okay? And it will not be, you will not be, you will not go in detail about exactly where the error happened, but at least you know. You know you've, yeah. some change you did has, has, has resulted in some unintended side effects. It's funny you say that. I found um, Golden Master Test to be actually quite easy things to convince people with, especially the first time they see them. Yeah. And if you start then doing mutation tests and comparing it to whatever testing methods they've got already, particularly if you've got. Um, like big web services that spit out giant JSON documents or giant XML documents which nobody really asserts properly in acceptance <laughs> tests they look for the one thing they think is changing Yeah, but you you, you can show them those um, diffs that come out of it and do a bit of mutation testing and so look at all the different things hmm. that check this can pick up and I, yeah. I found people that's one of the things um, I, I don't have to work very hard to sell Okay, you know, in my experience I mean I know our it's, experience is different and limited but uh, I think it's uh, on some cases it's because it does it could actually take a while to be able to set up yeah I mean the, the big issue with it is obviously what you want to do is get the system into some state execute some command and then have, yeah. have your output to compare against mm. and it's that first step that I just you know threw out there oh we'll just get it into some state that'll be easy that's the <laughs> bit that's the bit that, that, that really really struggle with because yeah. you end up um, you know, because a lot of systems aren't really designed to be designed to be tested like that. So you, you've got you know elaborate um, amounts of code to force databases into particular states and that kind of thing. And yeah, that 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 bit of it sucks and is painful. <laughs> um, if, if you're fortunate, it'd be something you can easily sort of black box test where you can you can push a request into an API, fetch an answer out. Yeah, and that that's the ideal scenario. It's like that's brilliant. Um, that's message in, message out. Barely back. see, yeah. It's almost never that, <laughs> but you know when it, when it is, the, you're really fortunate. Cause that that technique in those circumstances is incredibly powerful, incredibly easy. Yeah. Well, on this case, we had to because it was all automated with the the, the people that were dealing with it. They had to first uh, being able to do the diff of the of the files, then uh, get a report out of that, and because there will be things that, that will change. For example, you have the date of the, the date in, in which it was uh, printed, or you have some specific barcode that it will change based on the on 
on day and on all, all, all the stuff, they actually had to they, they have to spend quite a lot of time in just okay, all these tips that you're gonna find the, so my, my the system that was in the report, all these tips are actually not important. The, the fact that they are different is, is okay, we understand that they are different. Yeah. And and that is the part that I took for that one I, I believe that was the, well that and finding all the all the applications that we wanted to use with the exact uh, uh, and setting up all the all the input data for for those applications that as well took a took a while. But once I, and it was the first time that I was try, trying the golden master, uh, and I was I was quite impressed with the with the idea. And and since then I was I was think that is my responsibility. I've seen it work. I've seen it how good it, it is for uh, legacy applications. Convince other people. It's, you have to do it because it is. I trying to put something right now out there without having it tested properly. Q, QA manual QA just most of the times is just not enough. No, and the, yeah, not only is it. I mean, manual QA takes a lot of time, and I've worked on the kind of system we're describing a big system message in, message out, which was tested largely by manual QA and builds were coming out fairly frequently and the other thing that you don't know, appreciate is with people is that um, they're not um, terribly consistent this is not a criticism of people but if you have someone you know typing in the same values into the testing tool 10, 20, 30 times a day they get bored they make mistakes they don't notice these things <laughs> then, then that's one of the things computers are great at they're great at doing tedious jobs um, reliably and that's one of the things that people people are terrible at. Yeah, you, you want your people doing inventive, creative work where you know intuition is required. You don't want them being essentially bad computers. Yeah, uh, I, I think that, that, that's a good point. We we are bad computers. If yeah, we, we are, are doing, we we're terrible at anything. That, <laughs> anything that requires any degree of discipline, or you know, if it gets boring, you know, people fall asleep. They, you know, they browse the internet. You know, they, yeah, people are terrible at repetitive stuff. Yes. Um, so, and that's the great thing, though. Computers are brilliant at it. So, if you've got yeah. repetitive stuff, that's the thing you should be looking towards, mate. Hmm. Um, so, we, we have that idea of of being able to apply those those techniques. I find it that is. Well, I I do believe that uh, all these techniques that we use have made my life better and easier when I am coding. I I do find that. As a person, I want other coders to be in that same situation. I like to, to when I go to a, with clients, uh, any of my previous employees, I want them, my colleagues, uh, to actually use the same techniques because I have found my life so much better. So, yeah, so I know what you mean. You see people... Um, doing something you can sort of see them suffering you think yeah that used to be me if, yeah. if you do this and this your life would be so much better because <laughs> um, that uh, a lot of it is I mean we, we talk about you know meeting client goals meeting business objectives hmm. and that's important and, and it is important and it's the main reason what we do but also um, I think a lot of the personal satisfaction that comes along with that is is making people's lives better Yeah, because a lot of the things that get in the way of meeting client goals and business objectives is the is all these sort of horrible practices and horrible whatever you want to call it the, the things that demotivate people people make things hard to change and brittle and all that kind of stuff mm. um, 
And if you can fix that, everybody's lives get better. And there's a great side effect. It usually makes it easier to hit your business goals and all the rest of it. Yeah. And it is as well, the case that if you don't fix that, that, kind, of, uh, that kind of things, once you leave the company, for which you have been doing the consultancy, well, they're going to be in the same situation in a few months. They will have to call you again because any change that, oh, yes, we just putting a, some software out and doing a, the release, that's, that's not good enough. It gives you the now. Yes. But the six months time, six months time, you're going to have the same issue because you haven't fixed the being late on a release or not having enough people is just, uh, uh, is the effect, but you haven't fixed the cause. Yeah, or so, what? yeah the root cause of what, yeah. So it's one thing to, to meet the goals, but you are you want to leave a client in a position where they don't really need you anymore to meet the next goal because they, yeah. they, they, their organization's in a better shape, their processes are in a better shape, and they're just in a better place to do this kind of stuff by themselves. Um, yeah, you're right. If you just focus 100% on whatever the deliverable is, maybe you get them over the line, but then if they haven't learned anything from how they build things and how they do things, then they're going to find themselves, again, in the same kind of situation six months, a year, 18 months down the line. Uh, how have you... How do you find... Uh, how do you actually manage to deal with developers that don't want to change? Oh, God. Um... <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that probably a podcast in of itself. Um, I'm fortunate, and by and large, only um, I don't think I've really dealt with that many developers who are completely intransigent. It doesn't just apply to developers, of course. I mean, you know, it's a building software is a collaborative activity. There's lots of other um, specialisms involved, but you know, developers. I mean. Touch wood, I don't think I've ever come across anyone who's completely stuck to their way of doing things and, and wasn't was unpersuadable. I mean, maybe I'm just lucky. Um, but by and large, um, most people can be well, prepared to give most things a chance, even if that's how you just spin it. So how about we just try this for a week, two weeks, we get together, talk about it. And if you don't like it, then we don't have to carry on. And especially if you're working with teams, because um, individually you might have people who are not entirely bought into what you're trying to do, or maybe they don't care one way or the other. But if you can um, persuade a sort of a plurality, plurality a majority, <laughs> we use a different word, one that's easier to say, um, of people to, uh, to adopt these kind of things, they tend yeah. to bring other people with them. Um, yeah, I, I'm really struggling to think now if there's anybody I've ever worked with who was completely immovable on that front no one springs to mind I mean some people take to the stuff um, quicker than others yeah uh, and, and some people are more intrinsically motivated by what they do in programming I mean some people I mean you get lots of different kinds of people there are people who really enjoy what they're doing in programming they intrinsically intrinsically motivate them they want to get better and do better and those people are really easy to deal with and they're a pleasure to deal with and there are people who um, one way or another you know programming is just like a 9 to 5 job for them they're, they're not against getting better mm. they, you know, they don't hate it but you know it's, it's really it's just a means to an end so they can go out and do other things they really care about yeah and then uh, presumably there's a third category of people who just for whatever reason um, are completely against some of the things we, we might be trying to encourage 
I, I don't think I've ever come across someone like that. I come across people who are not really bothered by the other. Yeah. Um, and and those people are best best brought along by dealing with people who are enthusiastic and they tend to lift the entire team up. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. Have you had any experience with people who are just completely, completely intransigent? I have had a couple of experience with that. Uh, my solution in both cases was um, to actually sit down and pair program. Uh, uh, it was in both cases regarding unit testing. And it was sitting down with them and then going through uh, a code and and showing how I can accept that certain code is working or not through those unit tests and fa- especially when you can't find the the edge cases which of course you, I'm writing some code I have a 90% idea of how it's going to work but that 10% out there is where those uh, the unit test helps a lot yeah uh, and that has been in the in the past, for me, the best way to show on the case of unit testing of how uh, and having the why does it work or how it is useful for for you. Yeah, I did have a, a sort of similar situation today. It wasn't in response to dealing with people who didn't want to do anything, but I worked at a company where it was there was no there was no unit testing at all, no automated testing at all, and what would happen was. The releases were sort of six months, yeah. or six months, nine months schedule. Back in this is back in the days when you know you put software on a CD and people installed it on a computer, you know, years ago. <laughs> and um, so, what would happen was you know you you go to six months and there'd be a deadline of six months and you get to six months and it was what we, what you call feature complete, which is a nice euphemism for not not ready. Um, and then there would be this unbounded period, unpredictable period of time where it would just be bug hunting and testing and so that was always really awful because nobody really knew when it was getting finished um, you know the stress levels were high and it was just an unpleasant place to be and then we started doing unit testing it wasn't even TDD at that point we just started unit testing um, a new, uh, sort of a new module to the, the product and it got to the point where we got to this big release deadline and when everybody's expecting this big sort of crunch period it just worked Hmm. just all integrated all went just fine and um, although nobody you know I wasn't trying to persuade anybody about the merits of doing unit testing or TDD or DDD or any of these other techniques but um, that that demonstration like oh yeah well we started testing unit testing code and Hmm. you know that period where you don't know where it's going to be released and everybody gets really tight and there are customers you know screaming and all that that didn't happen it just went out the door pretty much on schedule and that made you know that's that's a powerful demonstration, if nothing else. I, I think genuinely happened, not making up <laughs> <laughs> for the purposes of a podcast. I, I, I think that's probably at the end is the best strategy is demonstrate that something works, and it's, it's a period that is so difficult uh, to actually have uh, studies of of TD or uh, or pair programming or whatnot. Because it's so difficult to, you cannot have the same 
two PA people. Yeah, there are there are so many variables; it's almost impossible to control yeah. them. The only way to study it, even remotely, properly, would be to have such massive sample sizes that probably no one could afford yeah. to run those kind of tests anyway. The one thing I will say about that example I just gave that the reason why that that worked and we were able to do that is because we were essentially writing, although it was a an add-on sort of module for the product, yeah. we were writing, it was mostly new. So we had the opportunity to write tests on the ground up. But that approach probably wouldn't have worked if we were doing a release that just involved making changes to the existing product because the, the code wasn't in a situation where it would easily support unit tests. Hmm. And in fact, had we done that, we'd have probably made it worse by the fact that doing all the work we needed to do to get testing in place, we'd probably have pushed the deadline back again and probably got to the point where we didn't actually finish that work because people were starting to get worried about getting their features and we'd have been halfway between two extremes. It would have been worse across the board. So, yeah, like I said, none of these things are perfect techniques. That one worked really well because the situation was just right for it. Hmm. Um, but like I say, it could easily have gone the other way if we said, oh, let's, let's for this next release of this big tangled product let's try and do some unit testing and you know we could have easily ended up in a situation where we tried to do unit testing for three months it was really difficult people were noticing that no features were getting done then we stopped and Mm. then you know deadlines were missed and we didn't get any tests yeah so all this stuff is very situational like that particular example made us look like geniuses but (laughs) it was it was at least 50% by accident I'd say okay Um, I want to finish going back to the micro interface. Oh, right. Okay. Can you I said it was bad, didn't I? I don't know, without elaborating. Um, okay. It's one of those things that irritates me, I guess, because uh, just applying an interface to a class that provides no behavior for me defeats the purpose of an interface. I don't understand why you need to do it. I, I appreciate some people do it to make um, finding types by reflection easier, but there are other ways, to, I mean, you've got annotations to do that in Java, you've got attributes to do it in .NET, so why aren't you using those instead, or yeah, in, in, or obeying some convention to find things? Um, it's just one of those things that makes me rationally angry. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels like, oh, you're using that all wrong. Um, whatever you're using, I'm sure whatever you're using it for, there's a better way. Hmm. Uh, yes. Although you're probably going to... Yeah, go on, tell me the... There is one. I, I, in general, I, am, I, I do agree with you. I don't... I never like them the first time I encounter them. And I usually don't, don't use them. Uh, and, for example, to, 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 I, I had one today. I had one today and one colleague called me out for it. Uh, <laughs> but, there is one thing that idiom... Because these two things are at different points of time, I didn't uh, I didn't connect them until recently. So on one side you have the market interfaces. In general, bad, uh, it's a bad, bad idea because it defeats the purpose of the interface. On the other hand, uh, I was thinking uh, not, not long ago, uh, some some of our colleagues, Rich, actually gave me one really good. Uh, uh, and he learned from another ex-colleague, Pedro, Pedro Santos, yeah. uh, which it was that primitive obsession, the code smell, when yeah. you convert the primitive into an object, it attracts behavior. Yes. So it could be possible that interface at that point on time, it doesn't, yet, it doesn't have that yet, that, that behavior. That was the first step on that. It, it will attack. It doesn't mean that it will, 
and uh, it's something that uh, as a general rule have to think but how many times you have uh, uh, converted a string into an object just because it gives a domain uh, a domain meaning to what you are doing I actually I do have to look at, uh, about that as you say maybe there is a way of doing it a, a different way for example in Java yeah I Okay, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm still sceptical. I'm not going to pretend I'm no, not. No, no. But I, I see that that could be the first step onto the, on you know, getting rid of primitive obsession around some type of... All right, yeah. I'm not sure I'd even call that a marker interface, but no, I appreciate no, it. Well, the first step would be to start with an empty interface and then see if it starts sucking behavior in, hmm. or you can start pushing behavior onto it. Yeah, it, it's just because, as we have said before, I, before I was 100% sure marker interface were not the way. They, they were just wrong, and then okay, I'm ninety nine point nine percent. Yeah, so, that's what the problem is. When you whenever you come out and say, yeah, that's always wrong, well, that's always right. There's, there's always somebody with a counter example, and you know, it's it, it's it, it's pretty dumb to make sweeping statements like that. Yeah, even though that is a sweeping statement in itself, I'm aware <laughs> of the irony. Don't you? No need to point it out. Um, but yeah, I think we had a discussion the other day, maybe at the open space about. Um, what, what the invariants of software development are, what things are always true. And I think we came to the conclusion that there's almost nothing that's always true. Yeah. There are many things that are true a lot of the time, like enough of the time that you could probably treat them as if they're true all the time. Yeah. But there's nothing that's genuinely, I think, always true. At least that's my opinion. And I think that's a pretty good opinion. Ah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think we're going to leave it for now. It's... Uh, just nearly 50 minutes of talk oh wow so not bad congratulations if you got through to the end <laughs> <laughs> yes thank you for staying with us yeah okay thank cool. you very much Chris Thanks a pleasure well. cheers see ya